Amen. What a great song. Oh, uh, J. Wilbur Chapman wrote that. Man, he wrote some good ones. And everyone he writes is like five verses long. <laughs> They're long ones. But that is a great one. I don't think you could skip a verse in that one, could you? They're all good. Take your Bible tonight and go to 1 Samuel chapter 22. 1 Samuel chapter 22, moving right along through the book of 1 Samuel. It's been a blessing to be able to get into this book and study it and read it and study it and marinate in it and roll around in it. 1 Samuel chapter 22, and when you find that, I know you just sat, but I'll have you stand again, and we'll just read the first five verses, and we'll see what the Lord has for us tonight. 1 Samuel chapter 22. All right, the Bible says in 1 Samuel chapter 22, verse 1, David therefore departed thence and escaped to the cave of Dulam. And when his brethren... And all his father's house heard it, they went down thither to him. And everyone that was in distress, and everyone that was in debt, and everyone that was discontented gathered themselves unto him. And he became a captain over them, and there were with him about four hundred men. And David went thence to Mizpe of Moab, and he said unto the king of Moab, Let my father and my mother, I pray thee, come forth and be with you till I know what God will do for me. And he brought them before the king of Moab, and they dwelt with him all the while that David was in the hold. And the prophet Gad said unto David, Abide not in the hold, depart and get thee into the land of Judah. Then David departed and came into the forest of Hereth. Great passage of scripture. It is absolutely loaded. Amen. It is loaded. And uh, I pray that the Lord will definitely give us exactly what we did tonight. It's always a pleasure and an honor to have Brother Micaiah with well, it. Will you ask the Lord's help in the preaching tonight? Amen. Thank you. May be seated. And I know we have a handful of people out tonight. Uh, some people not feeling good. And and uh, amen, I feel terrible, but I'm glad to be alive. <laughs> and, uh, but, uh, yeah, pray for the Vanderveens, they're a little ill, and but I know uh, people that want to be here couldn't be here, so just pray them. Of course, don't forget to keep Sister Shiloh in your prayers as she goes through this time, and uh, it's the prayers have been what's been a blessing to that family, and as uh, Brother Brian said, what a difficult thing to go to, but we have a good God, so we pray that he gives grace and the comfort. Now here in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 22, you know how this thing, uh, how we've come to this place. David has been on the run. And uh, we preach a lot about being on the run. And I'm not going to re-preach uh, the certain messages that we preach, but David has been on the run. And that's just a fact. And it, when you go back and think about it, initially when, uh, you know, what caused David to be on the run, he wasn't scared of anybody. Good night, he went up against a nine-foot giant. And he knocked that sucker out and then cut his head off. He's not afraid of people. I believe David just gets human like you and I do. But initially when Saul got jealous of David, and that's what happened, he got jealous. And you got to watch that in your Christian life. God starts blessing somebody else. Don't get jealous. I've learned just in the few short years I've been alive, not very long, when God blesses someone else, even if you're not, act like you're excited for him. It's like, like reverse psychology, like, Lord, this is so cool. I'm so glad they got that, thinking if maybe the Lord will dump one on you, amen. But uh, you got to be careful for jealousy in the Christian life. But Saul got jealous uh, because, you say, why? The Lord was all over David like a fan. I mean, you think about that young man, God was all over him. And what happened is that jealousy, it turned into hatred. Because when you can't have something you want, you see someone else got, you end up, uh, has, Terrible English. Wow. <laughs> I'm not even homeschooled. That was still terrible. Amen. <laughs> but it turns to hatred. And because God has blessed somebody else, if you don't watch that thing, you'll end up hating them. You said, oh, no, me. Oh, this stuff happens all the time. And uh, Saul ends up hating David and tries to kill him. And what happens back in chapter 19, verse 2, you know, he ends up going to that secret place. Amen. We preach about that secret place. And he goes into hiding, you know. 
kind of like a witness protection program there just for a little bit. And just uh, about uh, a few verses later, David's called out of hiding. You say, why? Because Saul had some battles he needed some help in. So David goes out into battle. David's a warrior, and he whips the daylights out of the Philistines, and he slaughters them left and right. And all of a sudden, within four verses of that, you find here in uh, 1911, uh, David is later told that he better run for his life. So what happened, jealousy turns to hatred, and then uh, David hides himself because uh, Saul casts a javelin. And then he's pulled out of hiding for a little bit to fight the Lord's battles. And then uh, Saul's all full of the devil again and, try, and says, you're, you're going to be a dead man. So he's got to run. He's got, you said, he didn't have to run. Oh, yeah, you would have stayed put, right? <laughs> You'd probably been a dead man. And then what happens in 1918, you know what David does? He begins a period of sprints in his life. And what he does, he runs towards his mentor in chapter 19 and verse 18. That'd be Samuel. And then he runs towards uh, his best friend in chapter 20. That's Jonathan. And then he runs towards the preacher in chapter 21. And he's running towards his individual. And finally, in chapter 21, verse 10 to 12, we preached about this one last time we were in the book of Samuel. He ran towards his enemy, Achish. And he ran towards his enemy. I don't know. That was either a gutsy move or a stupid move. But he got out there and he ran towards his enemy. And his enemy flat out, flat out scared him straight. This time at least. I know that thing will pop up later again a few chapters down the road. But he ran towards his enemy. He got there and all of a sudden he just got so scared. And he started acting like he was either half retarded or half, you know, mental or something like that. And spit rolling down. He had to get out of there, man. It scared him straight. And so here we come, finally, to 1 Samuel chapter 22. <laughs> and finally, David, I, I, I call this, if you want to name it something, I call this the great escape. If you want a title or a package or a bow to put, I call this a great escape tonight. And I believe here David makes one of the greatest escapes in his early ministry, and he escapes the fear of man by blitzkrieg into the cave of Adullam. Interesting enough, the cave of Adullam, another thing means hiding place. So here's another hiding place, and I believe God's had this thing lined up. And what happens is he escapes to a place where he can put on the brakes. And in this great escape, you and I, I believe we can see some real practical learning from the King James Bible. I do believe I have a great book tonight, but what good is your King James Bible if you can't walk in it a while? What good is it if you can stuff facts and figures and references and addresses and cell phone numbers in your head, but you can't go out here tomorrow and live it? Amen. And that's why I think it's just some great learning in these first five verses because it's so practical and if nothing else is right where I, your preacher, lives. And here uh, I, I believe David not only escaped to the cave of Adullam, as the scriptures say, but David escaped, I believe, we see the beginning of escape from his fears. He escapes from his friends. And he also escapes from his foes. You say, how do he do it? By stopping long enough to meet with his heavenly father. So I want to preach a little bit about this great escape tonight. And, uh, and, and with the, that word of Dulem, uh that was about two miles south, I believe uh, uh, Hitchcock's reference uh, book said, that was two miles south of one of his greatest victories there in the Valley of Elah. So geographically, it's just a stone's throw from where he had one of his greatest victories in his early ministry. And that being hiding place, I think, shows up there in Psalm chapter 32, verse 7, and Psalm 119, verse 114. And David starts out his verse, Thou art my hiding place. And in the Christian life, don't we just need some hiding places? Sometimes it turns on. And man, it turns on like a rain that never ends. And you just need a place you can get along with God. Now life's not always that bad and, and sometimes you'll clip along at a real good stretch and you won't seem to have any trouble but sometimes it does seem like that rain that never ends. And doesn't quit. And it's then and specifically then you've got to learn to run to that cave that you're not in forever but you're in it long enough to get what you need. Now I want you to show you something about this, uh, this, uh, this great escape, what it did. Uh, I want to show you this here. Number one, it brought him to the right place. It brought him to the right place. You know, it did. It enabled David to slow down. It enabled David to stop. 
And not only that, it enabled David to get a hold of God. If look at verse 1, the Bible said, David therefore departed thence and escaped to the cave of Adullam. Can I just, can I just be practical with you for a minute and tell you this? Our busyness in this life is not always biblical. Our busyness is not always biblical, and I'm all about serving the Lord, amen? And I believe the best that I know how, and I'm human, and I have probably had the wrong estimation, but I believe the best that I know how, I've given my life to serve the Lord. I've sanctified myself, not that it makes me any more special than anybody else on the pew, but I believe I've given my life to serve the Lord. But can I just say this? Your busyness is not always biblical, you say, how so, preacher? I'll give you just a couple examples. Martha was super busy, and her busyness, well, it got her into trouble. It got her into trouble with the Lord. The Lord said, Martha, thou art troubled, uh, careful and troubled about many things. She's busy. But not only that, Judas, he was pretty busy, wasn't he? And Judas's busyness, well, in the end, it turned him into a traitor. So can I just say your busyness is not always biblical, and I'm not naive enough to think that all of our busyness is for the Lord. We're human beings. We have lives, and we have families, and we have duties, and, and we have, well, we're creatures of habit, and we just kind of slip into gear sometimes, and if you're not careful, that, that thing can become a rut, and you know how it goes, rut, and then rot, and eventually ruin. So you have to be careful that your busyness, you don't get deceived to think that it's always biblical. You got to watch that thing. Well, not only is your busyness not always biblical, but a lot of times our running can be the very thing that leads to our ruin. Our running can lead to our ruin. Let me say this Jonah's running, well, you know about Jonah, it made him bitter. And sometimes, uh, just because we are familiar with how we live the Christian life and we have things that we know that we should do. Is it, is it okay to say that we understand what our routine duty should be? It should be, an underst- it should be understood that you should desire to read your Bible every day that you can. That's routine duty, isn't it? It's not going up the mountain, children. Well, you just should want to read your Bible, and if you don't, look, I, I've been there, I get it, but that's routine. It should be routine, not in the sense of drudgery, but it should just be routine duty that we pray every day. Now, you're not always going to pray as, you know, you're not going to be like Martin Luther and the, the best four hours of my day are the first four hours I spend in prayer. No, I, I get that. It's 2023. The hymn writer said, sweet hour of prayer. But I'll be honest with you, if you can go five or ten minutes, that's, that's above the average bear. But that stuff that we know that we should do, James has said, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. It's just routine duty, isn't it? It really is. And I'm not downplaying that. I mean, that's, that's the light to your soul. That's how you get fed. And if you don't feed the plant, the plant won't grow. And even though you don't see the growth, you have to continue to feed the plant or else it'll die. But that's routine duty. But you've got to be careful that your running doesn't ruin you. Jonah's running made him bitter. How about, have you ever think about Ahimeaz? The two runners are Cushai and Ahimeaz. Uh, Ahimeaz's running turned him into a bystander. You say, what does that mean? Well, he wanted to run, and he sure was good at it, and everybody could recognize who he was when he was running. People could point him out. He was faster than Cushai, and he ran so fast, he overtook Cushai. He got to the king first. He stood in front of the king, and the king said, what did you see? He said, well, I didn't really see anything. He had no tidings whatsoever. It made him a bystander. The king said, you stand over here. you got to be careful. You're running if you're not careful. will ruin you. You say, why are you saying this? Because David had to come to the place where he came to the cave of Adullam, a good hiding place, a divine intervention, if you could call it something like that, because the Lord needed David to put the brakes on to get his attention because you can't solve every problem in the Christian life by putting the gas to the, uh, the pedal to the metal. You've got to learn to stop and slow down. And by slowing down, it's going to sound like a contradiction many times If you'll just slow down as a Christian, it will help you go faster because you won't have any wasted steps. I believe you'll see that in the passage. You've got to be careful. But what this great escape for David is it brought him to the right place. Turn your Bible to Psalm chapter 57 real briefly. This is the psalm that David wrote while he was at the cave of Adullam. I don't know how long he was there. 
uh, you know, there's a break in the punctuation there. He could have been there a month. He could have been there, I, I have no idea, half a year. He could have been there a couple days. But the bottom line, he was there long enough to stop and breathe. You see, because from chapter 18 on, David is on the run. And you can see he's going to different individuals that mean something to him. And can I just say it like this? If you're not careful, you'll look for satisfaction among your family. You'll look for satisfaction among your friends. And you might even pick up the world a little bit and pick up try to find satisfaction with your foes when your relationship with Jesus Christ isn't what it should be. But here in Psalm chapter 57, slowing down allows us to get a hold of the Savior. I mean, didn't the Lord say in Matthew chapter 11, 28, I know this is very familiar, and it might even might be a, a tad bit elementary. Is that okay to say that? But didn't Jesus say, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you a list of things to do. He said rest, right? But somewhere along the line in our, in our biblicalness, in our spiritual thinking, and I'm not trying to be a jerk, but it's like we think that if we draw close to Jesus Christ, he's always going to make us run. He's always going to make us slave driving. And he's always going to make us serve with rigor. And Jesus Christ said, come unto me, all you that labor and heavy laden, I will give you rest. David obviously needed some rest. And I don't know, I might be preaching to a couple people here that just need a nap. <laughs> and the nap sound good? You're like, oh no, preacher, my age, if I take a nap, it'll ruin my, it'll ruin my night's sleep. I don't know about that. But some of y'all just need to rest. But see, when you think about resting, sometimes you feel like you're compromising. I don't know about you, the Bible says, for the wages of sin is death. And when you were saved, you did absolutely nothing to get your salvation. And sometimes, can I say it like this? It's just good to enjoy what the Lord's done for you. I'm not talking and I'm not trying to get you to put aside your responsibilities that you have for the Lord. But when was the last time you just actually enjoyed being saved? Instead of, I know I'm saved because I, I do this and I do that. And I go here, and I carve out time here, and I give money here. Right? You see what I mean? When was the last time you just, like, stopped and went, It's pretty good, Lord. Just seeing what you've done. And you ain't killed me yet. What a blessing that is, amen? But slowing down allows us to get a hold of the Savior. If you look here in verse 7, it might be just a little bit play on words, but as I read through this psalm, I see that David goes into that cave. If you know the background of 1 Samuel 8, or 17, 18, 19, 20, and 21, he, would you say he goes into the cave broken and he comes out fixed? Aren't you glad that God is a God that can fix your brokenness? I don't know about you, David was... He was, he was anointed in front of all of his brethren. He's, he is the king. He is the legitimate king from the moment he was anointed. you got to remember that. But just like Jesus Christ, he's in rejection right now. And David is in rejection. You know what Jesus Christ is in right now? He's in rejection. This world has rejected him. He came on his own. His own received him not. And he is J Jesus Christ and David are parallel with this thing, perfect type of Christ here. David is waiting the chance to reclaim what is rightfully his. And there's an imposter on the throne. You know what we have in this world? We have an imposter on the throne. You're like, I knew you didn't like Biden. I'm not talking about him either, amen? The God of this world is the devil. That was funny though, amen? But the Lord, he's in rejection right now, and one day he'll come back and he will claim right what was rightfully his. Why? Because it belongs to him. But let me say this. David went into the cave broken, but he came out fixed. If you glance at verse 9 in that passage, you'll see David went into the cave crying early on in the passage, but he comes out singing. Man, that's a great place to go. I mean, there ain't nothing like, you know, squalling and bawling and shedding a bunch of tears but to get that thing resolved, and he comes out of the cave of Dulem singing there. And you see that in verse name. How about this? In Psalm chapter 57, verse 4 and 6, you can plainly see that David goes into the cave exalting his strife. 
I mean, he's laying it out there, and that's what you should do, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. But he goes into the cave exalting a strife. If you look at verse 11, you find he comes out, he's exalting the Savior. That's a great place to be. You say, what? Cave of Adullam. It's his hiding place. You say, why? It allowed David to stop. I mean, if there's one thing David is really good at, he's really good at fighting. And some of you all are too. I'm not talking about one another. You might be good at that too, amen. But I'm talking about fighting the battle, living for God, serving. When something asks you, you do it without question, and you're always there to give just a little bit more. But David was able to stop. He was able to slow down, and he was able to get that what he needed from the Lord. I notice here that David had to stop to get a glimpse of God so he could go again. He had to stop. The Bible says over there in Psalm chapter 46, verse 10, it says, Be still and know that I am God. What a great verse that is. Man, you ought to hang on to that thing. Sometimes as Christians, we just need to be still. After all, was it in 1 Kings chapter 19, around verse 11 or 12, that old, uh, old prophet Elijah, he's out there. He's out there on the mountain. And you got the earthquake and the fire. And the Lord wasn't in any of that. But it was the still, small voice. You say, what does that mean? Well, a lot of times with the Lord, you have to be quiet enough and you have to be still enough that you can actually hear him. And it's not necessarily an audible sound, but it's got to be, you've got to get quiet enough in your own life that you're not running your own gears. You're not running your own rut. You're not running your own thing. And you can never hear what the Lord has to say because it's always about you. you got to be still and know that he is God. And you have to realize it's that still, small voice many times through the pages of that book that's in your lap that will guide and direct you every single day. The still, small voice. Well, not only did it, uh, not only did it uh, bring him to the right place, but it brought his family closer to him. It brought his family closer. He said, what are you saying? I'm just saying when David made the great escape and he brought things to a grinding halt and he stopped running, it brought his family closer. In verse 1, the Bible says, and when his brethren and all his father's house heard it, they went down thither to him. You see, sometimes we're going so fast that uh, we can't even spend the time we need to with the people that we love. And you can take this as a spiritual or practical application and work both ways. But I want you to see that the right fellowship with God, as we preached on Sunday, it promotes the right fellowship with your family. That's, of course, taken right out of 1 John chapter 1 and verse 4. It's all about fellowship. Chapter, uh, chapter 1 and verse 7 says, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. If you are right with the Lord, for the most part, minus that one uh, goofy brother or sister that's just a colicky individual, you'll have fellowship one with another. The right type of fellowship produces the right type of fellowship with your family. But you got to be right with the Lord first. That whole thing hinges on your fellowship with Jesus Christ. How about this? If you look at Genesis 37 verse 4 real quick, I want you to see the right type of fellowship affects how we talk to our family. The right type of fellowship affects our speech towards our family. And if you ever wonder why you have a difficult time, sometimes it's... Uh, uh, it could just be that your fellowship with the Lord isn't right, and then it makes it difficult for you to say anything nice about anybody else. Now, notice here, this is about Joseph the dreamer. Look at verse 3. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a coat of many colors. And when his brethren saw that their father loved him more than all his brethren, they hated him and could not speak peaceably unto him. You ever find yourself unable to speak peaceably towards people? I'm just saying real quickly, and we move on, we won't do any deep digging because that's obviously going to be a sensitive topic for some, you know, especially this time of year. But the right type of fellowship affects our speech towards our family. How about this? The right type of fellowship affects the support that we can be to our family. If you're not in fellowship with the Lord, you're not going to be, you're not going to be worth a, a wooden nickel to your family. Amen? And I know we're a small group here tonight, but this thing will go. Whether I'm preaching it or not. <laughs> Look at Gen uh, Genesis 47, 12. I don't know, when you think of the family that God's given you, your physical family, and then the spiritual family that God gives to you, how do you treat them? How do you talk to them? Do you talk to them uh, lovingly, or are you like the last verse and you can't speak peaceably to them? 
Uh, you know, my mom always told me, if you can't say nothing nice, uh, don't say anything at all. Well, if I took her advice all the time, I probably wouldn't have spoke half my life. Amen. <laughs> but look at Genesis 47, 12. I, want, I just want you to see this and we'll move on. That Joseph, I believe, is right with the Lord here. And in 47, 12, you see Joseph, after being treated so terribly, he still nourishes his family. You see that? He still nourishes his family. If there was one fellow that had a right or a reason, in my opinion, to just whop at least uh, 10 out of 12 of those brothers, it would have been Joseph. And he probably would have been justified by Egyptian law and Hebrew law after all they'd done. But you know what? After all that, he gave God the glory and he just nourished his family. That's a hard verse to process, isn't it? It is, especially in America it is. But if your fellowship is right with God, you'll be able to give your family the right support. Notice this thing. Back to 1 Samuel 22, in verses 3 and 4, brings his family closer to him and enables him to support his family. In verse 3 and 4, you notice it says, it says, Let my father and my mother, I pray thee, come forth and be with you till I know what God will do for me. David, he getting right with the Lord, I believe, and sharpening his fellowship with Jesus Christ, if I could say it like that, and you give me liberty to do so, he's then able to care about his family. He really couldn't care about his family, per se, when he's on the run. Why? He's just on the run. But now, he's in that place where he can think. Things have come to a stop. Things have come to a stand. He's not running around, worrying about everything. And now, you know what he starts thinking about? i got to take care of mom and dad i got to take care of the ones that always took care of me. And now he's able to nourish them. He even goes so far as to go into Moab. I'm not going to criticize him from going to Moab. I believe Moab was probably at peace with Saul at this time. And he says, hey, can you take care of mom and dad for me? And, of course, you know, he was, he was there. As long as he was in Adullam, mom and dad were over in Moab taking care of away from the trouble, away from the danger zones. It's the right type of support. He's able to nourish them. But notice this. I'll give you another thought to think about here in Genesis chapter 13 real quickly. The right type of fellowship, it affects the separation within our families. You say, that's kind of a weird one, preacher. It might be a little bit of a weird one. But the right type of fellowship with the Lord will affect the separation within our families. I'm not talking about hair length. I'm not talking about pork or pants or hair and hemline and all that stuff. I'm not even interested in that stuff, not because I don't think you ought to have standards. I'm not going to waste your time with my opinion of standards. How's that? Amen? Amen. I'm not going to throw up in my own mouth and make you eat it. But there's a point in time. There's, there's the effect I was looking for, right? There comes a point in time in Genesis chapter 13 that separation has to happen. I want you to look at that real quickly with me. I want you to notice here that this separation... Uh, avoids future family conflict. Genesis chapter 13, verse 8. You know the story. Abraham has to separate from Lot. And I don't think Lot's a, a bad guy. Amen? I mean, his, uh, his wife ends up being the first deer lick in the Bible. Amen? And, uh, you know, he's kind of an interesting fellow. He kinds of me like he'd be, he'd be like the coolest uncle to have around Christmas time. He'd probably give you the best gifts, probably give you the good birthday cards and probably lots of money. I just see Lot as a humanistic, you know, kind of liberal kind of Bible believer. Amen? That's why I just see him. I mean, he's, he's in the city, so he's a definitely a strange cat there. Amen? But notice in Genesis chapter 13, 18, this is where it begins. There's a feud, you know, these are the cowboy wars. 13, 8, Bible says, And Abraham said unto Lot, Let there be no strife, I pray thee, between me and thee, and between my herdmen and thy herdmen, for we be brethren. So what happens is they're going to have to split. They're going to have to part ways, aren't they? Right now, they're all jammed up together, up in everyone's business and all that stuff. And what has to happen is the separation has to take place. And I'm telling you, when you're right with God, you'll know when you need to separate from your family. Now, I'm not talking about flushing them, but separate. Listen, you don't have to tell your family every cotton pick and move you make in life. We doing all right? <laughs> you say, you're, a, you're, a, you're encouraging rebellion. I didn't say that at all. I just read your passage in the Bible, and Abraham and Lot are family, are they not? And a separation has to take place. And Uncle Abraham, he's, a, he's the more spiritual one in the thing. He's like, look, let's not fight over this thing. Notice here the next verse. The separation, I want you to notice it was a last resort. 
Abraham was told by God to get out of Ur of the Chaldees there, and he goes out, and he loves his family. He takes his father with him, right? And that fellow dies on the way, and, uh, and then he takes Lot with him. Why? He's a family man. He cares about his family. I mean, I respect that. But, you know, it just comes a point in time, God's trying to do something with Abraham, and Lot just kind of keeps getting in the way. So notice here that this separation was the last resort. Uh, when you read this account here in verse 9, if you look at this, he says, Is not the whole land before thee? Separate thyself, I pray thee, from me. If thou wilt take the left hand, then I'll go to the right. Or if thou depart to the right hand, then I'll go to the left. Not only did he give him first dibs, right? You see that? What a great fella. I mean, I'd probably look, 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 chump, I'm going over here. Get out of my way. <laughs> but obviously Abraham's a lot more spiritual than me. And he gives Lot the first pick. He doesn't disown him. He's like, look, we, we got to go. We got to part the ways here. He is avoiding future conflict. And notice it was a last resort. But also here, the one important thing I want you to see is we'll move on now. The separation became necessary to secure God's blessing. Look at verse 14 in the same chapter. God intended to bless Abraham, but as long as Lot was around, the blessing couldn't take place. So once the separation is made, Lot goes one way, Abraham goes the other way, and they are separated from each other. Now look what picks up. Verse 14, And the Lord said unto Abraham, After that, Lot was separated from him. You see, that? that's important for you to see. God's trying to make an individual out of you. I'm not saying you go up to your family members and say, Talk to the hand because the face ain't listening. But I want you to notice God's in the business of making individuals. Amen? And he wants to make an individual out of you, but if you're always, if mama's always over your shoulder, or if daddy's always telling you, you know, you know, when you're 30-some years old and where, you know, where to sit and how to stand, I'm telling you what, God's making an individual out of you. God doesn't make robots. God don't make a bunch of preacher Evanses. Thank God for that. God make a bunch of individuals. But that thing becomes necessary because until Lot separates, after that Lot was separated from now oh, look what he says, lift up thine eyes and look from the place where thou art northward and southward and eastward and westward for all the land which thou seest to thee will I give it and to thy seed forever. Do you think it's a coinkydink that he waited? The Lord knew that to make Abraham the individual that he needed to be and use Abraham as he saw fit, he was going to have to withdraw himself in some sense, from some of his family. That doesn't make his family bad. But you see, he has to constantly go bail out his nephew Lot, doesn't he? He's constantly getting into trouble. Notice the separation becomes necessary, not only to avoid the conflict, it was a last resort, but to secure future blessing. As a Christian, you better learn to separate yourself so you can be a blessing to your family when they need it. Not only that, I want to show you number three here. When David makes the great escape, hope this is practical, hope and it's helping you today. This uh, great escape, it began to further David's training. It began to further David's training. Now I want you to see, when David stops running, notice what God's able to do. In verse 2, I want you to notice the Lord begins to move the hearts of men. The Bible says in 1 Samuel 22, 2, and every one, and you got that whole list there, at the end of that verse says, gathered themselves unto him. You realize that God couldn't move the hearts of men until David was willing to stand still for a little bit? Can you imagine God moving a bunch of men and uh, let's say those 400 men, right, that came to the cave? And I know this might sound ridiculous and funny, but let's say that, uh, you know, David, he runs off and he runs over to uh, uh, Samuel. And the Lord's like, okay, 400, you got to go over to Samuel. And here they go, and they go over to Samuel, and they're like, okay, where's David? And Samuel's like, oh, yeah, he went back to see Jonathan. That's the next chapter in the Bible. And so they run over there, and they get over to Jonathan. They're like, where's David? And David's like, and Jonathan's like, well, he went to see a high tub in Nob, 18 miles northwest. And they're like, you're kidding me, right? God couldn't move the hearts of men until David was willing to sit still. And God can't move in my life, and he can't move in your life, until you're willing to just stop and do what he wants and get a hold of him. 
the Lord moves. Hearts of men. Now, I want you to notice that the Lord, <coughs> he manifests every man that he sends to David. He manifests every man as a 3D prospect. A 3D. He says, I thought we're all three-dimensional, preacher. Well, if you notice in the text, in verse 2, every man is a 3D prospect, as the old preacher says, because he's in distress, and he's in debt, and he's discontented. If that ain't the Bible-believing churches across America, I don't know what is, amen. What a beautiful picture of the church. I mean, you come to Jesus Christ, you're a, you're a mess. You're a wreck. <laughs> what a great picture of the church. And if you say you're not, you're just a bad liar, amen. <clears throat> like we said, Jesus Christ, he's a king in rejection as David was. A beautiful picture of the church today. Jesus Christ is awaiting what is rightfully his. Uh, this earth as David was awaiting the kingdom of Israel. Not only that, but Jesus Christ is our captain, amen? Just as in that verse, David was a captain unto them. And everyone that comes to Jesus Christ, they're in distress. A little bit stressed out, amen? They're in debt. I mean, when you came to the Lord, you had a sin debt that you couldn't pay. And you still can't pay it, amen, but thank God His blood paid for it. He redeemed us from our sins, and He paid the debt because we were in debt over our head. And not only that, but everyone that comes to Jesus Christ, they're discontented. They're just unhappy with this life. And you know what the Lord says? i got something so much better for you. You're a 3D prospect. We have at least that in common with each other. You're a 3D prospect, everyone's in debt, everyone's distressed, everyone's discontented. You love God, and you love the King James Bible. I mean, that's a lot to fellowship over, amen? <laughs> you say, well, I just don't get along with them. You're all 3D prospects. It's kind of like when I was the ice cream man. The statistics were like 98% of Americans had pizza and ice cream in their freezer. So when I went to everyone's door, I knew I could talk to them at least about pizza and ice cream. Making you hungry yet? <coughs> Well, you see, the Lord manifests every man as a 3D prospect. And then I want you to notice that the Lord makes David their leader. He makes David their leader. In verse 2, he became a captain unto them. Now, you know the story, and I won't get too far into it, but David starts on the backside of Bethlehem leading sheep. And he's leading sheep that don't even belong to him. And he's taking care of sheep, and he loved the sheep. You say, how do you know he loved the sheep? Well, he killed a lion and a bear. <laughs> I mean, I'm pretty sure he cared about them sheep. So he starts out leading sheep. I'm sure he's the youngest, a job nobody wanted to do on the backside of the hill, stepping in sheep dew and all that stuff, you know. What a great job out there at night and getting cold, but just out there with the sheep. And when the sheep had problems, busted legs, and got caught in the bogs and in the mire, there was David hauling out the sheep, you know, and, you know, probably swatting everyone, the, uh, the, the ornery ones, and driving away the, uh, the animals. But not only that, he was anointed by Samuel to be the rightful king in 1 Samuel 16. Then he gets a taste of victory. He kills his first giant the next chapter over in 1 Samuel 17. He becomes a great army leader in King Saul's army in 1 Samuel chapter 18. But then he loses that flock due to a church split. Pastor got mad at him, tried to kill him. I mean, the king tried to kill him. I just call it a church split, amen? You can call it what you want. And then David, he's, of course, on the run. In 1 Samuel chapter 20, 19, 20, he's got to rely on the Lord. But now the Lord begins to build David again as a leader, and that's what I want you to see. You see, I don't know what David's thinking. I can only imagine he's down to nothing. He sent his family away. He's got to be thinking in that cave, you've got to be done with me, Lord, right? I mean, you anointed me to be king, and I've gone through all this mess, all this fighting, I mean, I mean, you and me, we were really, we were really whooping them Philistines, weren't we? And the Lord's like, you sure, David, man, and just walk right on. I says, he's like, man, I, now they want to kill me. I'm like, for, for doing what you told me to do. Don't tell me that he wasn't thinking in that cave that the Lord was done with him. But David begins to further his training, and he makes him a leader again. And that's what a lot of young men, they struggle with. God will call them to preach, and God will call them to the ministry, and it'll look like the sun's out, sun's out, gun's out, right? 
And boy, it'll be good. And all of a sudden, the first trial comes along, just wipes you right off the face of the map. But what God's trying to do is get you to the point where you can trust him. And it takes you down a couple notches and see if you'll stick with it. Because what he wants to do is he wants to build you back up the way he wants you built up. And he becomes a leader. And now the Lord begins to build David again as a leader with 400 men here in 1 Samuel 22. And a couple chapters later, if you look over 1 Samuel 27, you find it's up to 600 men. I mean, here's the thing. If there's one thing I desire as a preacher is not only to have the touch of God when I preach, not just to be in fellowship with him, and when I'm dead and gone and the Lord ain't come back yet, this thing still go or, or whatever's left behind will be a tribute to the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I've always desired to attract men and not in a queer way. Amen. David, was a he was a man's man. He could lead. He could fight. And he would go out to battle. If no one would fight, he'd go out there. The Bible says he'd bow, bend a bow of steel with his bare arms. I mean, that's a man's man. Now, you show me someone who can bend a bow of steel, I'm following him. I will, right behind him, actually. <laughs> you know, because if we've got to face some nine-foot giant, he's going first. <laughs> Amen. Amen. But that's a man's man. And uh, God gives some men the ability to draw men. And here he's developing David, and he begins... At the bottom, he goes, he goes from the top. All the women are singing about him, right? And you tell me what that does for a 17-, 18-year-old boy. He's like, yeah. Ugh. I'm telling you what, you'd have done the same thing. You say, well, David is more spiritual than that. He was still 17. I mean, I don't care how spiritual you are, but you're still a young man. You still got red blood pumping through your veins, and someone starts singing about you. You're going to start thinking you're somebody. But David is beginning to be built up again as a leader with 400 men, and then it'll be 600. And by 2 Samuel chapter 5, here's the point I want to make. He's commanding the entire nation of Israel. I'm just saying it allowed the Lord to begin to further David's training. Can I give you the last one here tonight? When David made that great escape to the great hiding place, the cave of Dulam, it bolstered the communication between David and in the Lord. Look at verse 5. The Bible says, And the prophet Gad said unto David, Abide not in the hold. Can I give you a couple thoughts here before we try to bring this thing back into the hangar, as they would say? God will not use a man he cannot control. I want you to think about that for a minute. He we won't do it. Can God control you tonight? You ever stop think God could not control Saul? So you know what he did? The Bible says he removed him from being king. He could not control him. He could not rely on him to obey his word and do simple things that God told him to do. God will not use a man that he can control. And let me say this, God couldn't control Zedekiah. You say, what happened? Put his stinking eyes out. If you're going to pretend that God ain't there, you know what God might do? You're going to come gouge my eyeballs out? Maybe just take your spiritual eyesight away. You don't want to acknowledge that God's around, that God exists, and God's the one trying to lead and direct you. Maybe just shut your spiritual eyesight off in a year. Let's see where you're at in a year. That's a scary thought, ain't it? You imagine God taking his hands off you. I know you can't lose your salvation. I'm not going down that road. But God taking his hand off you and just letting you do whatever the, what you jolly well please for a year. Let's see where you're at in a year. I don't think I'd make it a year. God could control Zedekiah, so he put out his eyes. And let me say this, God will not communicate with you if he can't control you either. So if God can't control you, he can't use you. And if he can't control you, he's not going to communicate. I've heard Christians say all the time, and I'm not trying to be critical, but they say, I just don't think the Lord's talking to me lately. I've said the very same thing in the inner recesses of my goofy heart, and the Holy Spirit's like, uh, yeah, but... I've already told you what to do, and you won't do it. If God has given you instruction, and you won't do it, don't expect him to keep talking to you. Remember when Mary, uh, Mary and Martha and Joseph, that's weird. Mary and Joseph lost Jesus, amen? Luke chapter 2. <laughs> Watch that one go around Facebook, amen? <laughs> and they lost Jesus. He was 12 years old, right? What happened? Well, they lost him for one day. It took three days to get him back. 
And they went looking for the Lord and their friends and their family and their acquaintance and all that stuff. Couldn't find him. So what did they have to do? They had to stop and go back to the last place they lost him. If you don't feel like the Lord's talking to you, if you think it's quiet out, you know what you got to do? You got to go back to the place where he was talking to you. You say, I don't remember. Well, then you better ask the Holy Spirit to show you. I'll tell you what, and I'm not being spooky. Every time I ask the Lord, uh, why so quiet, the Holy Spirit brings to remembrance the last time we had sweet fellowship. And I'm just saying God will not communicate with you if he can't control you. But David, I see here, David is now ready to receive instruction. If you look back the last couple chapters, and we're just about done here, but David is kind of, if you get to chapter 20, you see him and Jonathan are trying to plot, and they're trying to plan, and they're trying to figure the thing out, and they got all these questions, and do you know what he's trying to do, and well, let's do this, and, and you do that, and, and I'll go here, and you go there. That's what we do in our Christian life. We try to plan it. We try to like help the Lord out, like, oh, I'm going to help the Lord out, and I'm going to get way over here, because I know the Lord wants me over here, and the Lord just wants you day by day, and with each passing moment. But I know the Lord wants me standing on top of that box back there. No, he doesn't. He wants you right here in the pew where you came tonight. That's where he wants you. If he can't control you, he won't talk to you. If he can't control you, he won't communicate with you. But now David, I believe, is ready to receive instruction. He's put the brakes on. He's slowed it down. You read Psalm 57. What a great chapter. He communicates with the Lord. He gets things works out. So now David's ready to receive instruction, verse 5. And when you get to the place where you're ready to receive instruction, you know what I know? When you're ready to receive instruction, verse 5, the Lord will send his man. You see that? He sends a preacher. He sends his man, the prophet Gad, in verse 5. And then with the Lord's man, you see the Lord's message. Verse 5 says, Abide not in the hold. Depart and get thee into the land of Judah. You say, why did he do that? Why did he say, why did he send God's man now? He's in the cave for crying out loud. Why did he send God's man? And now why did he send God's message? The only thing I can think is because now David is manageable. And he's not on the run anymore. And God knows he can control him. And whatever took place in that cave bolstered that communication between David and the Lord. And business picked up. And that relationship began to grow and further. And now the Lord's like, okay. Now... The Lord is the one calling the shots again. I believe, and if I have the wrong estimation, forgive me, it's a great practical application of the scriptures because now the Lord is telling David when to run and where to run. You see it? See, before it's David's like, I'm going to go here and I'm going to go there. <laughs> Hyperventilating, amen. I'm going to go over here and, oh, oh, you know, oh, you got any weapons? You got any bread? And, oh, we just got holy bread. And like, holy cow, give me some bread and all that stuff. And he goes out there and now he puts the brakes on. He gets right with the Lord or he bolsters that communication, that fellowship. And now the Lord's like, now you're ready. And by the way, now that you're ready, you can't stay here. Why? You can't stay in the cave. Why? Dark. It's lonely. There's no good endings in the cave in the Bible. Amen. We're going to think about that one. I believe the Lord did that because now David, his servant, is manageable. But here in verse 5, David, the man after God's own heart, learns a very valuable lesson. While he's still very much human, and you'll find later in the books he's got flesh problems. He's going to have some family problems. He's got some pride problems. But here at the cave of Adullam, the hiding place, David gets on track by getting a hold of God and getting rid of the fear of man. David learns that when you don't know what to do, well, it's best to do nothing at all. David learns that when he was out of control, God would not reveal himself to David. And in total, David now learns that it's perfectly fine. I want you to get this. It's perfectly fine to run from conflict if the Lord's the one telling you, when to run, and where to run. What a great passage of Scripture, so much packed into five verses. I said, Lord, man, boy, that's really good. And, man, you, boy, you nailed my hide to the wall, and I can see several years of my life where I was trying to be that guy, and I'm running to this guy, and I'm running to that guy, and, I, Lord, I know you want me to do this and that, trying to help you out, and, and I can even now see where you put me in the cave for a while. I said, Lord, show me something on this passage. Show me something on this passage. Old preacher Lynch used to do that. <laughs> I said, Lord, show me something about this passage. 
you look there in 1 Samuel chapter 22, I said, Lord, why in the world would you ask David through the preacher to go into the land of Judah? And I got to think about that. Verse 5. I says, well, it makes sense. You know, you shouldn't go to your enemies. Amen. Lord's not going to send you a bunch of Hamites. <laughs> He's not going to do it. So I'll go to the land of Judah. Okay, I get it. You know, that's home and that's, that's holy ground. Okay, I see that. Okay. He said, but well, why the forest of Hereth? I mean, I, I doubt David was a wood tick, amen? I, I would be surprised if he was. He'd be pretty good at it. I said, why the forest of Hereth? The forest of Hereth. I mean, you believe the Bible's inspired, amen? You believe it is? You believe every word? You believe punctuation? You believe the italics words? Well, y'all are rough tonight. I believe it. And I said, uh, Lord, why the forest of Hereth? I said, I'm going to look up and see what that means. I know what a forest means, a bunch of trees, right? <laughs> but what in the world is Harith? And I looked up in this, this little dictionary here. I looked up in this one. And they both mean a great lion. I said, wow. That's pretty good, Lord. You wanted David to leave because in the land of Judah, there's a great lion that will protect you. Revelation chapter 5, verse 5. Says the lion of the tribe. Whew. You got a great book tonight. Now, from this day forward, I believe David goes where the Lord says go, and he stays when the Lord says stay, with very few exceptions. And I say this may the Lord find the same fertile heart within us to cultivate the patience and the pliability that he was able to do with King David, his servant, David the man, and David the man after God's own heart. The great escape. I wonder tonight if maybe some of us just need to make the great escape. You say, what am I running from? I don't know what you're running from. I know what I'm running from. But the fact of the matter is maybe you just need to take a little time and spend in the cave. Don't stay there too long. You got to get out of the cave. Maybe just need to take time and spend it in the cave and get refreshed and get a hold of God. And remember, when he tells you to go, go ahead and go because the line of the tribe of Judah is out there and he'll take care of you. All right, why don't you stand? We'll be dismissed in prayer.